Welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. Today's episode is brought to you by Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 25 years and a supporter of not only the Bighorn Podcast, but many other activities throughout our neighborhood and the greater Palm Desert community. Please let them know how much we all appreciate their involvement. Also, Back Nine Greens, who have offered their support, led by Dominic Nappy and his staff of professionals who create works of art in your own backyard. My name is Marty Lockman, and today's guest is Todd Speaker, who, with his wife Kathy, have been members since the year 2000. Todd has not only been a longtime member here at Bighorn, but was a driving force both financially and in the design of our fantastic state-of-the-art lap pool located next to the Health and Wellness Center in Bighorn. Todd is not only a successful businessman, but a decorated swimmer at UCLA, and in 2005 was inducted into the Masters Hall of Fame and the UCLA Aquatics Center carries his name. This is a story that will captivate you with his life experiences, both in and out of Bighorn. So in his own words, a life that started in Children's Hospital in San Francisco, Todd, take us on your journey. Okay, thank you very much. I feel very uh, honored to be here. Bighorn has been a very good beneficial part of our life, both Kathy and mine. As I look back, born in June of 1948, I was blessed to have two great parents. And uh, without them, I wouldn't be where I am today. I also had a couple of key mentors to help me get started and persevere in business as the years went on. I remember receiving an award from the Hall of Fame I want to say in 2016, my first sentence was something to the effect that uh, it's fitting that I speak last tonight because I was always last in life. I failed first grade, but through a, a lot of great swim coaches, I got to where I was. So I always felt like my parents never quit on me, but they taught me not to quit on myself. I thought that was very important. Failed first grade. I did not get out of high school at age 18. I got out of high school at age 19. I was a year behind. But I think that served me well. And my parents, my, my dad's always confided in me. We were prepared to accept mediocrity. But as time went on, I was able to hang my hat on one or two key elements in my life. Took me beyond mediocrity, quite frankly. I don't want to make that sound fat-headed. I was taught that you just, don't, you just don't take failure quietly. You persevere. You just have no choice. Yeah, Todd, again, most of these podcasts and most of the people that come in here and talk to us, they had a great support system at home. What did Dad do? What was his career? My dad's career was automobile leasing. My dad was an extremely disciplined individual, rented, sold used cars near Stanford University, went into the automobile leasing business. He learned uh, that the cars were his security because he would finance these cars. If you went and bought a car, you would pay X dollars and he'd mark it up a bit and charge a little more interest rate than the bank and hopefully he got paid. So my dad didn't want to hit the ball out of the park, but he always took time to play with us, teach us the right thing along with my mother, but he never had huge wants. He was very happy. He had some, he had, he had enough money to live the way he, want, he, he wanted to live and wanted his family to live. But basically, he ran this business successfully for years. And Todd, again, at that period of time, that was the American, American dream, that it was a middle-class upbringing, as sure. I understand it. Sure. And that certainly was the majority of people. That's how they lived, and, and they were happy, and um, they didn't have to keep up with the Joneses, so to speak. 
He had no desire to do that. Uh, we lived in a very nice upper middle class area. He paid, you know, something like six thousand dollars for an acre in, in Atherton, which is a high high income area, and, and joined uh, a country club, and that's where we started. Uh, to do a lot of the activities. Mainly there was a swim program there and that's how we got started. And my parents didn't know what to do with us. They just threw us in there and said, okay, go do it. Find out what you like. Yeah, find out what you like and you better like it. Yeah. <laughs> and and also I'm sure you talked about discipline, which we'll talk about throughout this yes. uh, podcast because that's one of the, the main uh, things that you feel so strongly about in your life sure. that helped you. What... Your mom was a homemaker. She stayed at home. Sure. And dad worked. What jobs did you have as you were growing up? Well, I, I did odd jobs. I had to earn an allowance, uh, whether it was sweeping the pool. I want to make a comment about my mother. My mother was of Italian and English heritage, and she had a lot of spunk. She kind of, uh, she'd always be kind of an igniter. And my dad was a very staunch, 100% German Discipline. How they got along, I don't know, but they got along and they were married for 67 years until my mom died at age 88. My dad died a month and a half before 91, but they, they got it done. Don't, and it was very unconventional, uh, but they never quit on us. The family was key. My dad said, your friends are your friends, but your family are the most important people you have. You like most of us. Got jobs if you wanted to pay for a sure. baseball glove or whatever you needed to sure. have during that period of time. Schooling, you're one year behind at the very start. Yes. Did that impact you at all at the time? Did you think about that? Or, or is that just uh, this is the way things are and we move forward? I think a combination. It was on my mind. I did take some abuse from the people that I went to class with in my initial first grade year. And, uh, uh, but it, it kind of, it was, a, I, I, got, I developed an attitude subconsciously, don't get mad, get even. I remember going to these swim meets where every heat you'd move up a bench. And I remember one guy back, uh, he was a bit, couple of benches back, he said, oh, there's speaker, he failed first grade. You know, that just, uh, I, I kind of put that in the memory bank. My dad, in his own way, said, don't get mad, just get even. Someday, someday you will be good. Someday you will, you will uh, be successful. Great advice, but kids can be a little mean. Oh, yeah, that's right. And that, but that helped mold me. Yeah. Well, you have two choices, right? Yeah. And you chose the, the more positive choice of moving forward and, yeah. and getting even. Yeah. So now... You go through school. You're in swimming at an early age. Yes. How does that mold you? I mean, you're doing both of these things. You go to school in the Atherton area. Yes. Once you get out, you swim in high school, I assume? Yeah, I swam in high school. But before then, um, my dad uh, found out about the AAU swimming program by accident. He was a member of the local Elks Club. And so I, he would take us to swim in the Elks Club pool. And uh, he saw a guy, says, hey, he said, say, 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 Warren, you ought to get your kids in the swimming program down in Palo Alto, neighboring city. So he eventually did. And it was a, uh, the only thing is my parents, my mom would take us at five and my dad would pick us up at 630. And that was a deal because my mom had to get ready for dinner at seven o'clock. And so it was just, we just evolved into that. Eventually, I found uh, through a slow process, my calling that this is what I could hang my head on. I was not a good student. This is something I could, I was uh, an average swimmer to start, but I developed into not a great swimmer, but a good swimmer. I still classify, classify myself as a good swimmer today, but I outlasted the quitters. But a good work ethic from the very start. Absolutely. What about your siblings? Did they also well, follow or did they do different well, stuff? Well, they, uh, co combination. I had an older brother, four years older. I had a sister roughly three years older. And I have a, a younger brother who's uh, five years younger. My uh, older brother, Ned, swam. Uh, but he was a very, very good overall athlete. He excelled at swimming. 
he didn't want to put the total uh, effort into going to the next level. He probably could have had, he had some ability, but he didn't want to. My sister uh, was a good swimmer, but did not want to uh, pursue it, pursue those evening workouts, etc. cetera. Uh, my younger brother was a very good swimmer. He was an, an all-American swimmer in high school, but he, he only swam one year in college because he had, he had some back issues. You're swimming all the time. You're doing as well as you can in school yes. to get to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. Sure. And now you finished high school. Yes. But there was a Stanford connection at the time and a Cal connection, but you chose to go to UCLA because yes. it was much better weather. Let me go back a bit. I had an opportunity to go to Cal. I had an opportunity to go to UCLA, not because of my academics, because they were allowed to take students that didn't meet the academic requirements for other purposes, mine being athletics, swimming. Stanford, I could not get into. I just didn't have the grades. I didn't get past first base. Not that I tried that hard, because I knew. UCLA and Cal both offered me full scholarship, room and board, tuition and fees. I also considered Oregon, but I arrived at UCLA. The weekend I got for my recruiting trip, it was middle of January, 80 degrees, 1967. And you thought... This, this is the this, deal. This is good. This is perfect. And the coaches took an interest in me, and I was able to letter four years, and I was an All-American one year. But also, at that time, now you're going to UCLA as a student yes, also. Yes, What are you majoring in? What's your area of interest? I, 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 uh, I ended up majoring in geography because... Quite frankly, the major was not too academically challenging, but I enjoyed the urban aspect of geography more than the physical aspects. I didn't care much about rock formations and soil, but I did like the way, I did like learning about urban downtown cores and how areas grow because I'm in the real estate business today. And that, uh, I got a lot out of that. But the main courses I took were Santa Monica College, starting a year before I graduated from UCLA, and I got a real estate degree from the community college system and got my real estate license, and right after college, I got my real estate broker's license. And what prompted this interest? Yes, it was an epiphany from God. That's the way I describe it. I went down to Westwood Village with neighboring UCLA and said, I went and got a real estate primer, learned it, and, and then took some real estate courses uh, between morning and afternoon workouts, passed my real estate sales test and did some part-time work in nearby Santa Monica. And once again, discipline and hard work because to get all of this in, whenever you're an athlete yes. at, a, at a large school like UCLA, sure. there's a lot of demands on you. You have to take your normal yes. class load and now you're doing the real estate thing. Um, you finish high school, I mean, you finish college. What's the next step? The next step, I went to UCLA for four and a, four and a quarter years. And uh, toward the end, when I was, a, you know, ending my junior year, when I had a few quarters to go, I said, what the heck am I going to do after I get out of school? My parents made it very clear, you're not coming back living here. They said, you come back for a meal once in a while, and we'll cook you a nice meal. But that was it. Uh, they were, you know, that, that, those were the ground rules and stringent. And so I went down and picked up that real estate primer, memorized it. I uh, eventually, then I took a real estate course from a, uh, it was called Great Western Cities. And they were developing a town called California City in the middle of nowhere, north of Lancaster and a little farther east. And they said, we will offer you huge real estate opportunities. We'll get you a real estate license. And then you can start selling real estate out in the middle of nowhere. So I, I took the advantage of getting the real estate license and went to their classes and learned a lot about sales. I mean, you talk about selling. They would try to envision this California city as uh, the current, uh, that time, Wilshire Boulevard near, down, near Westwood, L.A., Beverly Hills, et cetera, all the way into downtown L.A. And this was not the case. <laughs> but I learned a lot about sales, and um, you pick up people from 
areas of LA, you drive them uh, 90 miles up to California City, through Palmdale, through Lancaster. I thought that was a, uh, I had really, the, my, had my classes where I wanted them. I uh, befriended a couple of teachers and I became, uh, I, I helped organize their offices. And so I became a teacher assistant, not because of knowledge in the subject of psychology or geography, just because they needed help. The professors tend to get into their own world. I had my classes in hand. I was more interested in my real estate classes than I was UCLA by a long shot. I had those in tow. At this point, do you look back and say, this was destined to be, or I... Or this is this. I saw this as my life's work. How did? What was your thought process at well, the time? As I was taking these real estate courses, I loved the valuation process of real estate, and I, I, I remember going to real estate, you know, these classes at Santa Monica at eight o'clock, you know, at six to nine, you know, six to ten at night, or seven to ten at night, and and I, I would always talk to these old guy, these old. Codgers that were, you know, uh, taking these courses, I eventually said, someday, if I own enough real estate, I could make money as I sleep. I eventually said, I'm going to make this my life's work because I didn't have the ability to go to law school, didn't want to pursue anything academic, really. And so real estate was my calling. And my mom always liked to look at real local real estate at home. And she'd take me to open houses. I enjoyed it. What's your first actual venture into buying real estate or becoming involved in, in some form of ownership? Okay, I'll tell you. Uh, 1976, I bought a two-bedroom, one-bath one home. Uh, and in uh, uh, a good area of Palo Alto for $44,000 with 10% down, 80% financing, and 20%, uh, 10% owner carry back. Then I bought this home, rented it out. Uh, I bought my first home a year before, I should say, that we lived in that home. Eventually, I found out a lot about financing, how the rental values can pay, you know, eventually you make money off the rent. Uh, I ended up buying a few more homes, and then eventually I started buying apartments, and that's where I am today. Where, were you married at this time, starting a family? In, and yeah, I was married in 1974 uh, to, to Kathy, and uh, um, we bought our first home in 75, and we bought this investment property in 1976. I was uh, I started work on a full time basis with Lincoln Property Company. It was a, a branch of Trammell Crow Company. Trammell Crow and Mac Pogue were the big partners back in Dallas, Texas, and the regional partner hired me to find land in the western United States to build apartments. And so there I got a real feel for the numbers of what it takes to make these numbers work once they're built. Now, again, not unlike your parents, it always takes a support system. So Kathy's on board with this career. Sure. And she's, uh, you guys, it, because anything like this, there's that partnership between sure. the two of you. You're having, you have children now or? Yeah, we, I have, we have three children, 10 grandchildren. They're all married, uh, three children, and then we have 10 grandchildren. They want our first child, uh, our first child, a boy, T, he was born in 77 and uh, married in 04. And my daughter, a couple of years younger than T, born in 79, she got married in 2008. And our, our baby, uh, born in 1981, got married in 2011. And uh, as your father told you, family is everything. Everything. Absolutely. So now you've, you've got a couple of properties and you're going in now into apartment right. houses. Right. Are you still working for another company? Do you decide now it's time for you to go out on your own? How does that all uh, transpire? Very, very good question. Lincoln Property hired me in February 72, uh, a week after I finished my last real estate course at Santa Monica College. And uh, they hired me and... Uh, fast forward, and I did. I did find some land to build close to a thousand units for them, apartments for the company, not mine. And uh, come 
early mid 1974, actually spring, they had I got my walking papers because it was the oil embargo, and so everything went to crapola, and uh, so I uh, eventually uh, had to uh, uh, I had to go find another job, and I got a job I, re- I I got a job offer from Coldwell Banker Commercial Brokerage Company, 1974, selling apartments uh, as a real estate broker. And my area was San Mateo and Santa Clara counties, basically. Here's a phone. Here's a desk. Start dialing for dollars. That was basically the bottom line in a more refined form. And as I was talking to these owners, I thought initially these owners would be huge, sophisticated people, kind of uh, higher, you know, larger than life. They were just average old Joes like the next guy. So I got to thinking. If they can do it, I can do it. But I need the capital. I had no money. Otherwise, you know, another, I think Cobalt Banker gave us a subsistence salary, $700 a month. My first job with Lincoln was $700 a month. When I left, I was making a grand sum of $895 a month. Not $8,500. $895 as in less than 1000 so I wasn't making much money. I don't care what era it was. And uh, then Coldwell Banker said, you know, until you start making commissions, we'll give you 700 bucks a month. And so I had no capital. But I said, someday I want to start owning these apartments. Then I started making commission dollars. And as I uh, saved my commission dollars, my wife was finishing up nursing school at the time. Uh, and she had a salary coming in. We just kind of uh, we just kind of scrimped along, and we were happy doing it, and we were living the American dream, but I wanted, I needed the next step, capital. And once I established an income stream, I went to the banks and started establishing credit, and then I started buying the real estate, and pretty soon they started creating enough income to borrow against the assets I, I'd buy. So it just kind of ballooned. But it was a plan, You you know, I think it's important to have some sort of a goal. Otherwise, you don't have a track to run on. And and you knew exactly what the prize was at the end. Yes. And you did whatever it took to make that happen. I mean, the prize was I had a certain amount of independence because I had eventually I had some financial independence. But that was a long time coming. That did not happen overnight. Uh, Believe me. And... uh, Everybody can, you know, every, most people, you know, things take time. Right. And uh, so. And patience is not always easy for most people. And they then either give up or move on to something else. Sure. But you were committed. Absolutely. I was more than committed. I mean, I was, I was almost obsessed because I did not want to fail. As my regional manager said at Coldwell Banker, he said, I have a speaking, he went to tell somebody, he says, if speaker fails, he's going to jump off the nearest bridge. I did not want to fail. I don't know if I'd jump off the nearest bridge, but I did not want to fail. But also, Todd, this is what's been driving you since the first grade, when you're put back in the first grade. I mean, people have told you, subtly or not, you know, you can't, you can't, but yes. you keep telling people, yes, I can, and you keep showing them I'm not going to fail. Yeah, exactly. Don't get mad, get even. Gotcha. And uh, um, I didn't know I was going to use that phrase today, but uh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so now you're starting to, you're still working for someone else. No, I, I, now you've yes, now you're right. out on your own. Yes, no, not quite. I worked for Cobalt Bankers real estate broker, selling property as an agent, uh, uh, much like people sell homes. Uh, and then I started to accumulate enough apartments where I had to go out on my own and create my own own office. And I did that in March of 1981. And eventually I just said, I cut the cord. I'm not going to sell real estate anymore. I've, I keep my license up every year because it has come in handy. Uh, but basically, I set up my own shop in March of 1981 with a little 1,000-square-foot uh, uh, office with a couple of people in it uh, in Palo Alto. Was that scary? 
No, I was excited about it. Good. And I, I, I was uh, all in. And uh, fortunately, at that time, I think I uh, had ownership in about a little over 200 units. Half were my own and other halves were partnerships that I formed while I was a Cobalt Banker. So now you're out on your own. You're driven. Um, you like the success, and success breeds success. Sure. How does it go there from there? I've eventually started to buy more apartments as time went on. I always made it a point to know what the competition was doing, whether it's what are the rents in my, the areas I, I was investing in, what are the values of the properties I want to invest in. And so I, I, to this day, I still log every rent that's received, and I still comp virtually all the apartments four units on up. Even I own many units. I have 150 properties today, and they're all sizes. Uh, yeah, they range from 40 units up to over 200 units per project. Knowing your marketplace is key. You have to know your You just can't go out and say, I'll buy something because someone says it's good. I wanted to know in my own mind it was good. And, the, and what was the criteria to figure that out? Well, I think uh, uh, I, always, I ask four basic questions when a property comes across my, when it when comes to me. Give me the uh, address, the age, the mix of units, and the price. If I have those four items, I can make it an algebraic equation whether I should go to step B or not because I create what you call an X factor. I uh, value one bedroom at a certain X. I value two bedrooms at a certain X, uh, studios. And when I, I receive comparable sales in the area, I track them by a, a so-called X factor. Did you stay in the same geographic area? Almost. Because know your market is one yeah, of your... Yeah. Yes, for the most part. I did, I did uh, branch out a bit. But I'm back to where 95% of my units today are between Burlingame and Los Gatos. And I can get to any of these with normal traffic with 25 minutes from my office. But I still have some properties in Los Angeles run themselves because low-income housing projects that they give me market rate from because that's what I negotiated with the government. Uh, but basically, I have 95% of my assets are in my geographic area, San Mateo or Santa Clara counties. And how many people do you have that work for you today? In excess of 200 employees. What do you look for in employees when you hire people? Well, I don't do a lot of the direct hiring except the higher echelon employees. Again, I learned this from my father-in-law. You hire the guy or you hire the person. I said, well, what if you get down to X and Y, says, you hire the person. You find out what that, what that so-called X factor is. You find out what ticks. I want to get a person who wants to work. If they come in and say, well, what are my days off? <laughs> you know, what are the holidays here? Not a good sign. We have people that are maintenance people on properties. We have people that manage several little properties that are in a geographic uh, area. I don't get involved in that because I have people do that for me. But when you first started, you were more hands-on. Oh, obviously. I had to be. You had to be at that time. And so you surrounded yourself with like-minded people, I would assume. I, I did, but that also is trial and error. You, know, you hire some people, and sometimes they don't work out. I don't feel I'm the toughest guy to work with. Sometimes things don't work out, but most of the time I've been fortunate that employees have worked out that I've had purview over. I do get involved with the uh, top 20 people that run the company. I have you know, 20 main people who run the show with two people that really run the show. Todd, how would you define leadership? Because that's something we talk about all the time, whether it be government or whether it be business or whatever it might be. How would you define leadership? You One must be definitive. Uh, we sell three things in life, time, knowledge and credibility. I try to portray that in the people that are under my purview. Time, knowledge, and credibility. Those are three key things. Anything you try to sell in life, it all comes out of those three items, I think. Again, it's a gut feel. You know, I always ask employees, where do you want to be in two years, five years, and 10 years? 
I get a lot out of that answer. If they say, uh, ooh, uh, ooh, uh, well, then I'm going to get an uh, ooh, uh, ooh, uh response. But sometimes when people say, well, in two years, I want to be X. Five years, I want to be X plus. And then 10 years, I want to be X plus plus. That tells me something, depending what the X plus pluses are, or the X pluses are. And part of it is just listening. Oh, I tell you, as I get older, I do a lot more listening, a lot less talking. I feel I want people to sell themselves to me, and I do that by listening. Today, wildly successful. Was this the expected results, or was this just always the goal, and you just keep working until at the very start? You said, I, I want to just move forward, and I want to be an owner of units and, and make money while I'm sleeping. That was a dream, but you take dreams to goals to reality. And if someone t told me back in 1972, when I had my first, started my first job, that I would own X, own what I own now, I would say, Jesus, that was a heck of a dream I just had. <laughs> uh, it, but uh, I, I plan on I keep going. Uh, one of my one of my siblings works for the company because if something happens to me, I'm the sole owner of all my units and the company. I don't have I don't have any partners. And something if I if I keeled over today, um, uh, my daughter would have to pick up, would would pick up the pieces and run with it. And she's uh, been with me. She was a former Apple employee and decided to come to work because I said, hey, I need somebody. My oldest child, my son, he's basically financially independent at age 44. He's got his own deal going, and I do not in any way, shape, or form want to deprive him of what he did on his own. He doesn't accept my help. I have no ownership in his business. He did it on his own with a couple of partners. I never want to deprive that. I have one of my daughters who works, and she is learning the business She's on a more rapid rise than I thought that she'd be at this point. She's been with me about close to a year. It chokes me up, really. Well, again, family. Yeah, absolutely. You've had great business success. You've had great athletic success. We don't want to leave athletics because you're still active today. First of all, before we talk about Bighorn and how you got here and, and what this has meant to you, that tell us about your uh, athletic involvement today how does that look well my athletic involvement from a physical standpoint is i want to keep myself in good physical condition i could be worth one could be worth all the money in the world but if they don't take care of themselves they aren't worth much in my opinion and and that's i think that reasoning's obvious um, i want to keep myself in good physical shape i typically like to exercise around the seven to eight o'clock hour because I have the day ahead of me, I'm awake anyway, and it's out of the way. My penance has been paid for the day. And staying in shape. Yeah. Also, and that includes swimming, uh, working out. A uh, hiking. Uh, hiking, but doing something virtually every day. Every day. I've missed one day in the last two and a half years. Uh, every day, minus that one day. Are you still involved in... With UCLA? I am uh, on the board, the Zyman Real Estate. I was uh, what they call a founding, a, fa a founding board member. And also, I was doing some research. You, during the pandemic, with the Olympics coming up, it's my understanding you were actively involved with uh, uh, Katie Ledecky and Simone Manuel. Yeah. Tell us that story. Oh, that is just... I mean, you talk about a mom and apple pie story. All public pools and university pools were shut down. No pools around. I have a similar pool in my backyard to what I designed at Bighorn. Very close. To make a long story short, I received a call from the former head men's coach at Stanford saying, Katie Ledecky and Simone Manuel need a place to work out desperately. All pools were shut down, country club pools, everything was shut down by mandate. This is back in March of 2020. And so the women's Olympic coach, Greg Behan, who's also the Stanford women's Olympic coach, gave me a call. And I said, 
Come on in. Pool's there. I keep it heated all year round. They worked out roughly nine sessions a week for three months straight until other till Stanford's pools opened up where these ladies were training. That And they were fantastic ladies, fantastic human beings. And someone said, well, you might get COVID. I said, no problem. They'd come. One would put their clothes in one part of the chaise lounge and the other would put it on the other part of the chaise lounge. And it was just, uh, and they worked out every day. The, the women's Olympic coach, Greg Meehan, was there every day. I'd finished my workout about 8.05 in the morning with my personal trainer. I'd be coming in and I'd say hi and then I'd go, you know, get ready to start my day. I'd make sure I was out. I was swimming around their schedule. I did not want to impede what they wanted to do. Their swimming is a lot more important than mine, but I got my swim in early. Your love of swimming and your patriotic duty uh, didn't allow an arch rival from UCLA to Stanford take advantage of the opportunity. Joking. Oh, oh with the, they, they went to Stanford, those yeah, ladies. Oh, right, absolutely. Yeah. That had nothing to do with it. They were representing our country. That's exactly And right. above all, these ladies, these athletes were great human beings. I can't emphasize that enough. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, we don't know much about Simone Manuel's. I've ne- we never met her, any parts of her family, but we know uh, uh, the Ledecky family a bit. The mothers kept in constant touch with us. She was the nicest thank you note. Thanking us for letting Katie use the pool. If can you imagine if I had the only pool around and I said no, that was not even close to an option. I mean, I'd be I'd feel like such a schmuck by saying no. I no way I would have done that. Uh, that was not an option. My for initially when I told Catherine we're going to have uh, some uh, ladies swimming in our back in, in the <laughs> pool, she says, "Well, we're going to get covered." I said, they, "They didn't go inside." They did not even begin to go inside the pool. Yeah. I mean, inside the house, I should say. What other, any other involvement in the, the sport of swimming? I'm on the International Swimming Hall of Fame as a board member, and I'm not terribly active. They've decided to keep me on because I have supported them over the years. I give to certain unique causes at home. I was fortunate enough to start our yeah. Housing Industry Foundation, a fellow member, Jim Morley, it was his idea back in the late 1980s to start this to help people that are down on their luck, help them with uh, rents people can't afford to pay or deposits to get people in apartments. And Jim Morley started this, and I was one of the members on the founding board. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit involved with that. I'm proud to say my son is the current president of HIF. He's younger. He's uh, my 44-year-old son. In the period of time we've just gone through with this pandemic, Todd, give me a little idea of how that's affected rental properties and and real estate as a whole uh, in your mind, and and where does it go from here? Well, I'll I'll tell you, my income uh, was really down in late 20 and 21 it's coming, it's, it's come back, it started coming back a summer last year. Uh, and it's, but it's not quite where it was pre-pandemic. That's the bottom line. Uh, but fortunately, um, I'm not, since I'm not heavily leveraged, it hasn't affected my lifestyle, but it's affected a lot of people's lifestyle. I've bought some apartments from people that have been affected because they needed to sell. They were uh, willing to discount their price. How do you view the future as this? You're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Things are getting better. Sure. But do you still think we're in for a little bit of a, uh, a longer-term full recovery? I say I would be surprised if this pandemic started in March of 2020. I would be surprised if we still have some residual effects for a total of five years. I would be surprised if this goes till early 25. Uh, not, not the effect... Because we're coming out of it now, but there's still some ill effects. I mean, uh, in my area where I have the concentration of my apartments, Google, Apple, and Facebook still haven't fully opened up. And so people aren't coming back until they fully open up and put butts in the offices. 
They aren't going to rent my apartments as robustly as they were when there were a lot of people of a full occupancy in the offices. Gotcha. That makes sense. All of this success, and I sure appreciate you being so honest and sharing these stories. The next part of it is I'd sure like to know is how you found Bighorn. And then after you've told me that, what were your first impressions of R.D. Hubbard? tell you how I found out of Bighorn initially. I would come down to housing conferences and our, our, we would be staying at the Esmeralda, you know, in Indian Wells. And I got to know Craig Angelo, who's the brother of Corky Angelo. So Craig, Corky, a couple of other people and I went out uh, for dinner. And I got to meet Corky for the first time, a, a fellow member. And I said, Corky, you sound like you know what you're doing around here. He had a home at that time at Desert Horizons. He was in the process of building his home. And this was in January of 2000. I said, where's the best place here? He says, come up and see my place. Uh, Bighorn's the best place. Well, I had breaks from the conference. I came up to look at homes here, made a couple of offers. My wife didn't know about it. And then I finally brought my wife down and we went to look at Bighorn, Vintage, El Dorado, and a couple places in Laquita. But we arrived here. I've never looked back. This was a great move. It was another one of these epiphanies from God, being right here at Bighorn. And 22 years ago, obviously Bighorn isn't what it is today. But you had a vision, as did Mr. Hubbard, about what this place yeah. Could be. Tell us about that first uh, time you met Mr. Hubbard. He was walking into the old clubhouse. And I was walking out. I had a sense he was the man. I said, hello, uh, Mr. Hubbard. I'm Todd Speaker. I'm a new member. Hi, how are you? Great to see you. And then it, he, it evolved in when I had a question about the pool. And I said, well, some things need to be doing that. This is the old pool. And he kept referring to me that that person in the Speedo, as in Speedo swimsuit. He's the one that complains in the Speedo. (laughs) One time, the door was locked to the gym that was downstairs in the old clubhouse. I had to come up through the the men's, the stairs to the men's, and I came in in the Speedo. I couldn't get in the dressing room, which was right next to the old gym, but it was locked. So he's always referred to me as the guy in the Speedo. But I got along with R.D. Fine. Because I certainly didn't want to fight the gentleman. I saw what he had done to this point. Yeah, when he not he bought this side, and then he, he went and bought the other side, which really made Bighorn, because they're both two different style golf courses. I'm not a golf aficionado, but he it, it, that buying that other side was just genius. And uh, so you have to respect the guy. I mean, uh, he, he lives a different type of lifestyle than I choose to live. I really respect the man. When it came time to negotiate the new pool, (laughs) I said, R.D. By then I could call, I was calling him R.D. This was after a golf tournament with, and so I was sitting there with Hubbard after the dinner after, and I said, what what about this new pool with the new clubhouse? Because this is the last year of the old clubhouse. He said, well, we're thinking about putting a pool there. Uh, You want to help? I said, Sure, I want to help. He said, you help, you can have input. So I basically designed the pool with the architect, and the rest is history. So I got along with R.D. fine. Once, uh, R.D., you have to earn his respect. You know, if he, he doesn't like you. That's the end of the ballgame. As he says, suggestions about this bighorn go in the middle of that lake. And that's fine, but I love the, what he did here, and I still love what he has going here. I miss the man. My relationship with R.D. was very good. I, nothing but superlatives on that front. Some people will say that you can argue the process, but you certainly can't argue the results. It, sometimes you can't argue much with the process either. Sometimes if you have the democratic process, you get ugly-tasting sausage. <laughs> good, good line. What, you were the forerunner, as I understand it, because... You know the line here is if you uh, suggest it, you own it. Um, you know, whether that's salt and pepper shakers at the restaurants or, or whatever it might be. But uh, certainly your involvement in the pool that now exists over here because uh, 
because of your expertise, we have a world-class facility yes. to swim in rather than what somebody else might have been able to put together. And thank you again from all of us for your financial involvement, along with the help of designing the whole thing. But I tell you, that pool gets used. People didn't think it was going to get used, but it gets used. It was money well spent. I mean, having a club with this kind of infrastructure with no pool, that's unthinkable. I, pools don't make you a lot of money. But people, if you don't have a pool, you could lose a lot of money because people won't join. Well, I agree with you. And it's not only the pool for swimming laps or, for that matter, kids coming over and and just enjoying the water. But also, I've noticed a lot of people who are recovering from injuries or or some sort of physical therapy. That pool has been uh, invaluable in that respect also. Absolutely. No question about it. Couldn't agree with you more. I feel privileged that R.D. asked me if I wanted to help. I didn't make me any richer, but, <laughs> but I, I certainly, I appreciate it being asked because I, I sort of knew I had arrived with R.D. because yeah, I was the man in the Speedo. Well, and you know, again, not to belabor the point, but you mentioned respect. Uh, if he respected you, then he had those sorts of conversations. Yes. And I also think, and we've talked about this in past podcasts, people say he didn't listen. He listened a lot. And he was very open to um, your expertise in doing something with that, uh, that he wanted to have be the best in the valley, for sure. Yeah, and he does this with a lot of people. He doesn't want to admit he's listening. But he is. I I agree with that 1,000%. So let me ask you a couple of questions. Who are the people that have had the greatest influence on your life? At the risk of getting choked up, my mom and my dad. Gets me choked every time I talk about it. And it was, I think, our first date, February 12th, 1972. I'd just come home from college. A buddy of mine came out and said, hey, you want to go to sorority formal uh, Saturday? I said, no, I don't even have a job yet. I can't be going out. He says, speaker, you're not going out on Saturday. You're not going to be looking for a job Saturday night. I said, so I, we got set up together. And I tell you, my wife has been a huge asset. She is, She has been a huge she has made our house a home she has been great with those kids my wife has a nursing background i couldn't have been happier i hope she's half as happy with me than i am with her i'm sure that that's the case but it takes a partnership like that to make things work she helps create the partnership and i don't like to call my marriage a partnership because i think it's more than that Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not a business arrangement for no, sure. No, no. It, it, in my case, it isn't. <laughs> or her case. <laughs> what was your management philosophy? And I really, at the start, more than now, but what was your management philosophy as you started your company when it, at first? I said, I know, where, I know what I want to get accomplished in general. But I have to recognize I don't know everything about everything. So I use people with their certain expertise levels in certain aspects of the business. Um, because at the end of the day, I need help. I'm running, I don't want to say the, the, uh, the assets, value the assets, but I'm running a, a pretty good-sized company, solely owned. I need people to help me. You know, whether it's legal help, maintenance help, uh, rehab help, acquisition help, disposition help. I don't sell much, but uh, I use use people to help me get to where I want to go. Not use them like take advantage of them, but I use them in a good way, I think. With all your accomplishments, what drives you today? Good question. I've got a couple things that are unfinished business. I can't talk about it much right now, really, because that, that'd be a whole other hour discussion. But it is important, wouldn't you admit, that uh, a reason to get up in the morning, a reason to keep your mind active, and I'm sure that that happens on a daily basis for you. Absolutely. If, if I don't have something that has gotten me up specifically that day, 
I'm a little uncomfortable. I like to kind of have something to shoot for. I think most people that it's a good way to be driven. Todd, something I ask everybody, what would you tell the 20 year old Todd speaker today? Same thing I've told you for the last uh, several minutes. Don't hesitate to work 14 hour days. Also, if you decide to get married or have a relationship, make sure your, your partner understands what you want to accomplish. Because if he or she does not understand, then that will impede your process big time. You make sure that, that uh, you're on the same wavelength. And I can't say this if my wife has been an asset to me, not because she understands the apartment business, because she doesn't. Really, she understands the, the basics, but not enough to run the company. But she's taken a lot of load off of me by creating the home herself. And uh, I remember when we were raising the kids, she didn't require that I change the diapers. I think she basically didn't want me to because my wife wanted to have that domain. And not that people like to change diapers, mind you. She didn't require a lot of me because she knew I was building my business back in the 80s and building the foundation. It's amazing, Marty. I was fortunate to learn good habits in my 20s because the habits you form in your 20s, good or bad, will be with you for the duration. Think about it, good or bad. You take people the way they lived in, the, in their 20s, a lot of times at the forerunner how they're going to live the rest of their lives. Life. Good words. Todd, I really want to thank you. You know, it's been a privilege for me to talk to the people that come in here. When I sit over here, I learn every time, and today is no exception. But I really appreciate you coming in. It's been fun to have you here. It's been a great conversation, and thank you very much for doing this. Thank you, and I also learn a lot by your questions, Marty, and I mean that. Thank you very much. Todd, thank you for sharing your story. I know that your humility and low-key personality makes it uncomfortable to share your accomplishments, but as with all of our guests, these stories educate and entertain us in a way that is very personal, that brings us all closer together. Thanks again to Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers and Back Nine Greens, who provide the support that allows us to bring these interesting people and their extraordinary stories to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we look forward to another edition of the Big Horn Podcast in the near future.